0: That God is the one who is saving us and that we are not saving ourselves. And he's trying to break a tendency in us. A tendency that was represented by a lot of the Jewish Christians within this particular community. In that, they were trying to add steps to salvation. That it wasn't quite enough just to believe in God. You had to do this and you had to do this and you had to do that. And one of the thoughts that has occurred to me over and over through these first eight weeks is, why is it that we have a tendency to make grace so hard to get? Why is it that we make salvation so complicated? Because as much as we can say, well, you know, Paul is repeating himself, and he's making this point, he's already made that point, he's already saying this, why did he take five chapters to make those three points? Because we are (laughs) hard-headed. And sometimes it takes repetition over and over and over again just to get the point across. But we've acknowledged a few times through these first five chapters that there is still a tension in us that as much as... We want to say that we are saved by the grace of God. There is still this nagging voice in the back of our head that says, yes, but, yes, but, aren't we supposed to fill in the blank? Shouldn't we fill in the blank? You know, whatever it is that you think. And, and what occurs to me is that it is so easy for us To say, I am saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and through my faith in him. And then to immediately, immediately try to earn that somehow. Or decide that others aren't earning it in the right way. Uh, When I was growing up, I drove a 1966 Mustang. And my parents were the original owners of it. Uh, My older brother drove it. My older sister drove it. And then it sat Uh, in the side yard by our house for about 10 years until I got my hands on it and started cleaning it up. And we didn't have a lot of money to put into this car. Uh, So we fixed things as they needed to be fixed. Um, I have a lot of stories about that. But I'm just going to tell you one story this morning. And I I loved this car. But there were a lot of things that went wrong. Uh, The brakes went out on the road one time. Uh, There was rust in the gas tank so it would clog the fuel line and I would literally have to get to the side of the road, uh, disconnect the fuel line from the carburetor. I had a rubber tube uh, in, in the glove compartment that I would put onto the fuel line and then I would blow to try to blow the rust back out the other end and, um, you know, put it back together and then get back on the road until it would stop again. And you know what I found out later? A new gas tank was 100 bucks. <laughs> we didn't know that at the time, right? But I spent a couple of months blowing into a fuel line when, you know, it wasn't that bad to just get it replaced. Well, one of these times something had happened. I think maybe it had overheated or uh, maybe the fuel line got clogged and I couldn't blow the stuff out. And I, you know, I, who knows what had gone wrong. But my sisters and I had to push the car home. And so we put my sister Brooke behind the wheel and Bridget and I pushed. And Brooke's job was to, you know, steer and to make it stop. So we're pushing this, you know, very, very heavy car (laughs) down the road. And I think Bridget and I are in the back. So we're behind the car, we're pushing it. We're trying to get as much momentum as we come down the street so that we can get it up into the driveway. And the driveway went uh, not to a garage door, but up to, <clears throat> up to uh, basically the house where there were just three windows in the living room and, and the garage was around back. So we're, we're going to have to push it up this driveway and into the house. Not into the house, but up to the house. <laughs> well. <laughs> so we're pushing and we're pushing and we're like, okay, turn. And I was the only, to be fair, I was the only one who had a driver's license at the time. This was a mutual decision from my sisters and I, that I would, I would drive and they were totally cool with that. But there was something that didn't occur to me. And that was, as we turned this corner and we're giving it the extra shove to get it up to the house, Brooke screams out the window, I don't know how to make it stop. <laughs> so she was panicking as the car is rolling toward the house And I did what any smart young man would do. I ran around the car, got in front of it, and did this. Because I was going to stop it from hitting the house. And fortunately, before that had to happen, My sister found the brake. I mean, there's only two options in the car. She found the brake and the car lurched to a stop. And it was at that moment as my hands just touched it enough to feel momentum and then feel it stop that I thought to myself, dear Lord, thank you for sparing me from the hurt back and broken legs I was about to get as I became part of the house. I tell you that story because I think it very well illustrates what I was just talking about, the relationship between grace and the things that we do. I mean, you could stand back from that situation and say, "Dude, you're not going to stop that car. If it has enough momentum and it's coming up, you're not going to be able to stop it. Like what are you going to do?" And and the the sort of the idiocy of trying of putting myself between the car and the house. Like how did I not realize in the moment that that was a terrible idea? Um, And yet, I think it illustrates pretty well that as much as we know that we are saved by the grace of God, we still want to stop the car ourselves. We still want to put ourselves in that position to make it happen. But Paul has made this point. We cannot save ourselves, and no amount of good deeds or following the law is going to erase the fact that we are all still sinners. But again, there's good news to that because we are sinners who are not in need of a Savior. We have a Savior. Amen? So Paul is answering a lot of questions in Romans, but he does not try to answer them all at once. Instead, he's going step by step to make sure his readers get the whole picture of not only what God was doing, but why he was doing it. So he's covered all of this in the first five chapters. What is, is he anticipating is going to come next? Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 2. The first point he wants to make here in Romans chapter 6 is that having more grace does not allow us to have more sin, okay? And so here's what he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, this is not the moment you've been waiting for. Where Paul finally says, here's what you have to do, and here's what you have to do, and here's what you have to do. Okay? That is not really the point he's trying to make. So what is he talking about then? If he's not talking about what you can or can't do. What he's talking about here is the relationship that we have with sin once we have come into contact with Jesus. So keep that in the back of your mind. Okay? Okay? that he's talking about this relationship between believers and sin. And so he starts with this question, what shall we say then? Which is something that he uses uh, throughout his writings. And it's typically followed by a possible inference, an idea that is emphatically denied. Is this what it means when we say this? Of course not. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. The question that he is addressing here is one that he expected to hear and most likely had heard. So if A brings B and B is good, then why not do more of A? It's kind of logical, right? Uh, And if moreover B is a great good, is it not one's duty to increase B by doing more of A? Again, there's a certain logic. Why not continue to sin or even sin more so that the grace of God can abound more and can be seen more fully in the world? Now, this question uh, kind of has can come from those who maybe... Uh, would have intentionally misconstrued the doctrine of salvation by faith alone and by saying, since I've saved by faith alone, then the things that I don't do matter. God will save me from all of my sins and I don't need to try to get a hold on sin in my life. And, and what's equally possible is that this question came from uh, some of the Jewish Christians in the audience who felt that the doctrine of salvation by faith alone would encourage moral responsibility. Well, I mean, if you say that God forgives everyone for their sins and his grace abounds, then aren't people going to stop doing good things because they don't have to? So both of those viewpoints points are, are present in this one question. One group questioned the teaching for fear of what it might do. The former embraced the doctrine for what they felt it would allow them to do. So Paul, uh, as he likes to do, answers this question with a counter question. Are we to go on sinning? Of course not. And here's the question. Can people who are dead to sin keep sinning? The clear answer is, if you have died to sin then you can't continue to sin. It should, the relationship should stop there because death is what? It's the final, it's the end of things. So within this context, we might say, well, who has died? And and the one who has died is, of course, Jesus. Jesus has died to sin. And the idea here is that death separates Death to sin removes the believer from the control of sin. And you will find this throughout the teachings of Paul. The text does not say that sin dies to the believer, i.e. that it ceases to exist. Instead, the relationship with sin is cut off from our end. Sin is still going to be there. It is still going to exist. But we are dead to sin. You with me? Good. You are so responsive today. Let me just say, that, that lost hour, I know, it it hurts. Maybe I should have sang my sermon. Uh, Origen, the most influential theologian of the uh, period, describes death to sin in this way. To obey the cravings of sin is to be alive to sin, but not to obey the cravings of sin or succumb to its will, this is what it means to die to sin. So Paul here is trying to break down the influence that sin has over us and and even the control that sin has over us and how we should view this once we are in Jesus. It also takes us to something interesting, though. Any serious discussion of human sin and God's reaction to it has to include the death of Jesus. The death of Christ pays the price... Uh, of death that comes with sin. And we then participate in that death. Therefore, the one who has died with Christ no longer has to answer for that sin. The penalty has been paid. And so the point he wants to make, which I want you to just start to wrap your mind around this, is that if you are dead, then you are free from sin. So how is it that we die? Verses three through four. Through baptism, we join Jesus in his death. And here's what he says. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So sin continues. Sin uh, In its attempt to dominate uh, the life and the conduct of the believer, but here's what happens. When the believer is baptized into Jesus Christ, that means that we have been baptized into Jesus' death. Therefore, Christ's death for sin becomes our death to sin. We are joining him in that act. The burial certifies the reality of this death, that this is really happening. And baptism is the ritual act that portrays this death and burial. Now, Paul didn't talk about faith here when he talked about baptism. Um, but he, that's because he assumes that faith and baptism are things that are going to happen together. He doesn't separate the two. Now, why is it important for us to note that? Because for centuries, Christians have argued over this point. Faith, baptism, and all these different things. I want you to note that Paul is not arguing about whether you should or should not be baptized. He assumes that one will be baptized in an expression of their faith in Jesus. He is also not arguing about, and this has been one of our favorites historically, uh, the exact point when someone is saved, nor the method of baptism, things that we have gotten hung up over the years. So let me, let me give you a little bit of context to this. Forever it seems, like I said, that churches have argued over the exact moment of salvation. Uh, when is it precisely that someone has been saved? How many of you have engaged in that kind of conversation over you know, your history? Yeah, it's ha- or heard it talked about in church. What is the exact moment that someone is saved? Now, not every church baptizes like we do. So there are some churches that baptize children and infants. Uh, There are churches that sprinkle, there are churches that immerse. We baptize adults and we immerse those adults into water. Now the people who baptize infants, they do this because they believe that all humanity is born into sin and therefore even a baby is carrying the weight of the original sin that was committed through Adam. So they believe that babies should be baptized because it's the right thing to do to cleanse them of their sin. And here's something that's interesting that maybe you've never considered before. I went to a United Methodist uh, seminary when I was in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years. And I I had a teacher who was United Methodist that uh, was, his class was all of the corporate worship things, so communion and baptism and all this different stuff. And he found out I was in the Church of Christ. And uh, so we had a good conversation about it. Um, But he said something to me that I had never considered before. Not saying that I necessarily agreed with him. But he said, you baptize adults and we baptize children. I was like, yes. Why do you baptize adults? I said, because we believe in the confession of faith and that that's important and that babies can't decide that they believe in Jesus. He says, I see. And then he said, do you realize what you're doing when you say that? I said, nope. He said, you're turning baptism into a work. And he said, we baptize babies because there's nothing they can do to earn salvation. It's a gift from God, and therefore they can receive it from the morning they were born. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. We baptize adults because, again, the confession of faith is something that we believe is important to the whole process. But we have also tried to draw lines here with this, right? So it's the old discussion, which we brought up before. If someone dies on the way to church to be baptized, are they saved or not? <laughs> <We> <laughs> here's, here's another good one. If someone is being baptized and their hand, their whole body doesn't get out of the water, into the water, are they saved or not? My friend tells a story of uh, he baptized this woman who was terrified of water. And he got in there to baptize her and, and he lowered her down. And as he did, her hand shot up and grabbed the side of the baptistry and didn't go in. He raised her up. He thought everything was good. And someone approached him after church and said, that didn't take. You need to do it again. And if it were me, I would have said, well, look, she's just not going to have a hand in heaven. <laughs> right? It's all right. It's all right. Don't worry about it. We have, uh, we have taken something uh, and, and sort of, you know, chopped it up and chopped it up and chopped it up until it becomes unrecognizable for what it's supposed to be. I remember having a conversation uh, uh, with someone at, at a church that I was working at before, and we were talking about baptism and talking about immersion. And, and the point I was trying to make was, you know, we do believe in immersion, and so we are going to immerse people and to be baptized, but we also have to have a broader idea of what God's doing in the world so that if someone doesn't have the opportunity to be immersed, they could be baptized in a different way that would still save them. So I gave the example of what if someone is nowhere near a body of water and there is no way for them to get to a body of water to be immersed in baptism. Would it be okay if someone took a cup of water and dumped it over their head and baptized them in that way? And here's what someone said in response. I believe if that person genuinely wanted to be saved, God would create a body of water for them to be immersed in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're special. Um, There are many who uh, have said that those who die on the way to the church uh, are not saved. And then it's gone the other way, too, in other places where um, it's your confession of faith that saves you, but baptism doesn't mean anything in fact there are churches that baptize uh, for the main reason that jesus was baptized and so they call it a baptism of obedience because jesus did it you do it i wonder if paul had any sense for how christians would dissect his every word and be split apart by differences in interpretation that even something that is supposed to be sort of as beautiful and as simple as this that it would take on 50 different forms And that people would argue over what it means and what it doesn't mean. My guess, based on his experience, is he probably wouldn't have been that surprised at all. He has made two things very clear, though. We are saved through faith in Jesus and not by our own works, correct? And through baptism, we tie ourselves to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, making us dead to sin, okay? Making us dead to sin, Faith and baptism are not considered as two separate things, but rather as two steps that occur in the process of one whose life is being changed by Jesus. Let me say that one more time because I think this is important. Faith and baptism are not to be considered separately, but rather as two steps that occur in the process of one whose life is being changed by Jesus. What's the important part of that? Their life is being changed by Jesus. So what should you not argue over? What came first, the faith or the baptism? And which one really counts? We must die with Christ through baptism. And of course, this death only helps the living if one dies and comes back to life again. So as Christ was raised from the dead, Paul says we are raised uh, from the dead through baptism so that we can live a new life. The Greek expression translated new life is better rendered a new sphere which is life we almost as if through uh, the resurrection of Jesus, we are brought into a new world. It's kind of an interesting way to look at that. Apart from Christ, people are dead in their sins, as Paul has already made clear. But raised from the dead through faith in Christ, they enter an entirely new sphere of existence. They are now alive in Christ. Joining Jesus in his death, therefore, means we also join him in his resurrection. And the lives of those who have died and been raised with Christ, those lives, those people who come up out of the water, their life is to be remarkably different from the life they lived before they came to know the grace of God and Jesus. We believe that the love of God and Jesus changes everything, everything about us. So in order to live, you have to die. To have a new life, you must rise again. How do we do that? Well, as we just said, through baptism, we are joined with Jesus in his resurrection. Verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Okay, what are you noticing about what Paul is saying in this part? Has he said this before? Pretty much in the verses right before. So what does he do after he spells this out? He says it again. And he breaks it down for us again. As Jesus was raised victor over death, so also we are set free from the bondage of sin. Death comes before life in the realm of the Spirit. Believers, uh, by definition then, are those who by their union with Christ, they die with him on the cross, and that death has a definite purpose in the spiritual life of the believer. It puts them, they die to the power of sin, I should say. We were crucified in order that our sinful nature might be stripped of its power. He uses this phrase, might be done away with, which translates a form of of a Greek verb which speaks of being reduced to a condition of absolute impotence and inaction as if it were dead. Meaning sin, once you are baptized, no longer has any control or power over you. Sin, when you are baptized, no longer has any power or control over you. Resurrection lies beyond the control of death. It is victory over death. And the old self which was powerless is is gone. And that person is no longer under the power of sin. So in Christ, church, we are set free. We are set free to make choices and decisions that Paul believes we wouldn't have been able to have made. We wouldn't have been able to have made before. So let's break it down into more simple terms just to make sure we're not getting lost in all this language. The penalty for sin is death. We were under the power of sin and therefore death had authority over us as well. Now here's the good part. Jesus, (laughs) if you think about this, used death to overcome what? Sin and death. He used death, to overcome death. He died, but he defeated death through his resurrection. Therefore, death has no power over him. It has been defeated. And Paul says, he died once, he's not going to die again. So ultimately, Jesus used death to overcome death. By overpowering the punishment for sin, he overcame sin itself. By overcoming the punishment for sin, he, say, he overcame sin itself so that sin no longer has any threat or power, you see. Does sin continue to exist? Yes. But for the believer, it no longer has any threat or power because its threat and power has been taken away from it by Jesus Christ. Amen. So the cross was sin's final move. Right? The penalty for sin is death, and what did sin believe it was doing when it sent Jesus to the cross? It was writing the end of that story. But the resurrection was God's checkmate. The game was over. Sin is forever in defeat. Christ the victor died to sin once for all and now lives with God. So through baptism, we crucified our old self, our pre-Jesus self, with Jesus, and the body that was ruled by sin dies on the cross, therefore we are no longer slaves to sin. Anyone who has died has been set free, and not only do we participate in his death, but also his resurrection. We are raised again with him so that we live a new life with him. Okay, are we clear on that? Okay, good, because Paul said it twice and so did I. So what does the new life look like? Let's get down to the details here. All right? What does it look like? What does Paul mean when he says that we are no longer slaves to sin or that we are dead to sin? Because we know what? We still sin. So what is he talking about here? Well, here's his conclusion. (laughs) Guess what? It's a repeat. All right, so Paul now switches gears, and it's an important shift, and we're going to get into this more this next week. Most of the conversation up to this point has been about the idea of justification. Here is how God saves you. Here is how you participate in in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. But now, he is moving into the area of sanctification. Here's what it looks like when you live this life, this new life in Jesus Christ. And uh, instead of going through all the notes I have here, I just want to make it as simple as possible. He says that you have a choice. You have a choice. Now, the choice is not as simple as, I choose never to sin again, right? That's not what he means. It can't be what he means because he's just made this whole point about how we can't do that anyway. What he does mean is that we have a choice. And look at the words that are used in the passage. You can offer yourself to two things, right? You can offer your body to sin, or you can offer your body to Jesus. Those are the two things that sit in front of you. You can be an instrument for sin in the world or you can be an instrument for God in the world. And the only reason why you have this choice is because Jesus has saved you. You have this choice because Jesus has saved you and has cleansed you and released you from the power of sin. Before Jesus, you didn't have this choice because sin was a ruler over you. It was always going to have the last word because you are always going to sin. But now, you're still going to sin, but it doesn't have the last word. So now that you are free from sin having the last word, will you live your life as if sin still controls you, or will you live your life as though you are an instrument for God? Doing what God wants you to do in this world. And before we get too caught up with, well, that means you need to do this, and we get back to our whole list thing. I want to suggest something to you that I just want you to think about. So often we have identified sanctification, the the life in Christ, as going to church and reading our Bibles and praying and, you know, doing all these church things, right? And, and those things are good. I would like you to continue going to church. Uh, that would be extra great. But I want you to know that Paul never intends for us to go back to that list-keeping kind of life. Because sanctification doesn't exist apart from justification. Who you become doesn't exist apart from how God has changed you, you see. Grace and life are tied together through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we participate in. And so when we rise in baptism, we live in a new world. We live in a new world. A world where things are different for us. And what Paul, I think, is making clear here is that it doesn't mean a return to the lists and the law and the rules and all of those things. So I want to ask this question, what if over time we have misinterpreted what it means to live for Jesus, and we have put more importance on how someone looks, how someone acts, where they're from, where they agree with us or not, all in an effort to become more like Jesus, When really becoming more like Jesus means that we love more. We give more. We are more kind. We are full of grace. Because it is grace that got us here. Wouldn't that be different? Wouldn't that be different? We're called to be like Jesus. And we struggle with that call, right? Because it's like, how can I be like Jesus? He was perfect. Well, what if it doesn't mean that you have to do everything perfect like Jesus, but you love like he did, and you're kind like he was, and you're gracious like he was? So let's recap. More grace does not lead to more sin. That's not the point, and it's taking the whole conversation out of context. Number two, in order to have a new life, the old self must die. It must die. It must go away. Through baptism, our old self is crucified and buried with Jesus. And just as Jesus rose to new life as the victor over sin and death, we too rise as those who are no longer under the control of sin. The new life we live, we live for God and not for ourselves. So therefore, do not serve sin, serve God. Paul makes it clear that through Jesus... We do have a choice when it comes to sin. We cannot separate that ability to choose from the grace that God gave us, a grace that we did not deserve nor could we earn. It is this grace, this victory over sin and death, that changes us and motivates us to step fully into the new life that God has for us. So in short, don't walk around acting like sin is your master because it's not. Jesus is overcome, and through him you will overcome as well. Amen?